Pearl Harbor Day on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We always hear from people who don't think we've given enough due, even though it's 80 years ago today. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and Lisa Garvin, ready for a discussion of all the news that happened Monday. How are you all? Good. Good. Yeah, great. Ready to go? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the final Cleveland City Council meeting is behind us of this council, of this mayor. It's kind of a, a night of moment, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Let's start. The readers of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer constantly ask us to break down COVID deaths and hospitalizations by those who are vaccinated and those who are not. Why can't we do that, Laura? Because the state isn't releasing it, and they won't even explain why they don't have it. It's it's not like this is impossible. Pennsylvania reports breakthrough case rates monthly. Uh, about 12% of its total cases were breakthrough from January 1st through November 2nd. Michigan has a similar number, and it's reporting it. Indiana is reporting it. And if Indiana can do it, I, Ohio can do it. <laughs> I have a low opinion of Indiana. but um, You were just the, there a little while ago. That's why. <laughs> I was. I lived there for a year and a half. My whole take is oh, like, Ohio right. should just touch Illinois. Like, Didn't you meet your husband there? <laughs> I did. Okay, then you shouldn't be running. But he's from Ohio. (laughs) Anyway, okay. So poor Indiana. They're reporting breakthrough breakthrough case rates daily. On December 2nd, it was only 2.3% of cases that day. So the Ohio Department of Health is just basically their response is that vaccines have a good track record at preventing severe illness. Like, okay, duh. But so they do report them for hospitalizations and deaths but that's it and they're also i mean their reasoning if you get into it is that the majority of breakthrough cases are asymptomatic or very mild symptoms so people wouldn't necessarily know that they're sick or be getting tested for that how often do we get it then for hospitalizations and deaths weekly i believe and i think that i mean the deaths are coming straight from the cdc like we don't remember how badly <laughs> we messed up death counting in ohio it was it was bad and we had to redo it a lot so we just wait for the i think we get those twice a week from the cdc um see our readers complain every time we run numbers that aren't up to date by the day about this stuff they want to know and they think for two reasons. One, most of them are wise and have been vaccinated, and they want to know how low their risk is. They don't really care about the unvaccinated people, except that that's where mutations occur. But mainly, they say, if you showed this, it might convince more of the unvaccinated to quit being so stubborn and go protect themselves and their loved ones. But we can't. I mean, we'd love to. We have complained about how the health department in Ohio has released data since day one. It's been very, very unwieldy and Ohio gets very poor ratings nationwide for how it reveals data about what's going on in the state. Yeah, I mean, th- this is just another example of of not getting the information that we're looking for. And we have been do- saying that for, you know, since the beginning, since March 2020. Um, So since January 1st, Ohio experienced 2,289 hospital admissions among vaccinated patients compared to 40,000 unvaccinated, 594 deaths among the vaccinated compared to 12,372. So, I mean, those are some some shock not shocking i mean that makes sense right but those are some big disparities we don't know is who's boosted and who had underlying conditions like you know something that would make you super vulnerable 
the, the what we're getting now is for people that have gotten the booster, how many of them are ending up hospitalized? How many of them? They, they understand that it's a low percentage, but they want the specifics and they pay taxes. You know, they pay the state a lot of money and they're like, what am I getting for it? Why can't I get this data? So we basically I asked for a story about this so that people would stop yelling at me. <laughs> they basically think we're choosing not to do this and we would do it in a heartbeat if the state would just get off the dime and serve the residents the way it's supposed to. You know, can I jump in with, so it strikes me though that one complicating factor is, is what Laura pointed out, the, we don't know, you know, how many are boosted is the, is, the, is the real question because at what point does someone's waning immunity from their original uh, doses of the vaccine start to mean that you're not really vaccinated anymore. I mean, some people were vaccinated about a year ago. Does that still, you know, a year later count as a as a breakthrough case? Uh, I mean, if two years from now, is that a breakthrough case? Or, or do you no longer have any lasting immunity? So I think it, it matters how recently you were immunized, right? Uh, when we're talking about uh, statistics like this that we want to report. Right. But Absolutely. To, More information is better. Right. And all you got to do is ask people when they get tested. When did you get the vaccine? Have you gotten the booster? When did you get the booster? It's not really rocket science. Well, here. they do that at the pharmacies when you do the drive through testing. Um, you know, mm, I, that, yeah. that data is going someplace. So it should be available. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but not to the State dumpster. Department of Health. Or it's not coming to us. Anyway, now you know why we can't answer those questions. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the latest tactic by anti-vaccine activists to block elected leaders in Ohio from mandating vaccines and not just for the coronavirus? Lisa, I don't know how much of a chance this has. I don't think the voters of Ohio would show up to the polls to approve it. But it's another attempt by people on the fringe far right to stop public health efforts. It is. And what it, it's called an initiated statute. So what they have to do is they have to uh, gather like a thousand signatures from registered voters and take this to the legislature. And then if the legislature fails to act on it within four months, then it goes to a statewide vote. And they would need like 132,000 signatures to put this on the ballot. It's being called the Vaccine and or Gene Therapy Anti-Discrimination Act. And uh, there are several uh, people who have kind of petitioned for it. The one group is uh, Ohio Advocates for Medical Freedom. They, we reached out to them, Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. They have not gotten back to us with a comment yet. But basically what this initiated statute does is it prohibits all state employees employers, rather, insurance providers and, and others from requiring vaccines of any kind. And that means mumps, chickenpox, rubella, whatever. And your vaccination status would be exempt from disclosure. So in, in light of, you know, rapidly rising COVID rates in Ohio and across the country, this just looks like another backward step. Does it also have a declaration in it that the earth is flat, CRT is taught in schools, and that the Democratic Party is just a big pedophile ring? <laughs> no, it does not. But maybe you can, it probably is coming from the same sort of sentiment as those things. Yeah, but, and, and with these initiated statutes, um, and I guess Dave Yost is looking at the language. You know, he has to look at any sort of ballot language and he, and, certify the signatures. He has until this Thursday the 9th to reject or certify this this act and its language. So we'll see what he says. 
Think about it, though. If this were to pass, then people could send their kids to school without measles vaccine and all of the things that have kept people safe for so many years. And it's just one the most backwards effort yet. But I but when you look at the polls of Ohioans, this is not where the bulk of Ohioans are. This is the kind of Josh Mandel fringe crazy people that that believe this stuff. So even if they get it, they've got to get signatures to get it there. And right. I don't know. I don't I don't think this would have success. So it's more of a stunt. Maybe it's to uh, get out the vote kind of thing that they want to make sure all the fringe wing nuts show up to vote in the election because they don't like Mike DeWine either. And that this is a way they can deal with that. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are we going to have a Democratic primary for Cuyahoga County Executive in 2022? Who's the candidate who might oppose longtime University Circle Chief Chris Ronane for the seat being vacated by Armin Budish after his two terms? Layla, this is not a surprise. We expect we'll see a few more candidates, but mm-hmm. who's the latest to throw her hat into the ring? Kinda, because... Not completely. (laughs) That's true. Uh, The latest is Annette Blackwell. She's the mayor of the east side suburb of Maple Heights. We had stumbled upon a website announcing her candidacy, though the site was pretty bare bones with with the exception of a press release explaining why she was running. Someone affiliated with her campaign confirmed that she is running, but but asked reporter Caitlin Durbin, how did you find the site? (laughs) So I'm guessing that wasn't how Blackwell wanted to announce her candidacy because later in the day she kind of took the site down. Um, anyway, you know, Blackwell is, is the first female and first black black mayor of Maple Heights, a, a city that is itself about 70 percent black. She's been mayor since 2016 uh, during a time when Maple was in dire financial st- straits uh, under fiscal emergency. She says she helped the city regain financial stability in the last five years. Prior to being elected mayor, Blackwell worked at KeyBank in installing lending and uh, university hospitals as an administrative coordinator. She also served 16 years as a senior commercial property tax analyst and co-leader of the Black Employee Network um, at Deloitte and Rhine Global Tax Services, where she also was a uh, U.S. India liaison. So kind of a varied background in business. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Public Relations and Corporate Communications. But, you know, she's a really new mayor of a town that is not exactly thriving. So, you know, in 2019, three years after she took office, uh, our former columnist Mark Namick had done a ride along with her through Maple Heights to talk about the challenges she faces of spurring economic development there. And, And Blackwell said that she would love to have at least one Starbucks in the city limits or a sit-down restaurant instead of just a bunch of drive-throughs. Uh, of course, she inherited that problem as mayor. It's it's hardly an indictment of her executive skills that in, in just five years she hasn't been able to turn around a city that has been in financial turmoil for so long. But But maybe she needs to be mayor longer so she can demonstrate her ability to do that before we make her executive of the entire county. That's just kind of what I'm thinking. What do you think? Well, it's a rocky start. I mean, the, to to put the website up, take it down, and did she really was the signature name misspelled when on, on that? I mean, it's not the way you want to kick it off. But it it also you're right. The contrast between her and Chris Ronan. Chris Ronan's been out in public life for decades now, and he has all the contacts. And 
we all know that great collaboration is needed in the next county executive. The one we have has been pretty much a disaster in every way you could count. We've gone over it. So, so people are looking for a true leader. Chris ran University Circle for, what, 16 years. It grew enormously. He's been all over town. Everybody knows him. Right. So when you contrast the two on paper, you know, you would look at Chris Ronane and say, okay, well, he's way more qualified than, than she is. But, you know, the, what, where I look at this from is we didn't have a primary challenger for Armin Budish four years ago, and then he ran unopposed in November. And look at the last four years. They have been an utter disaster, mm-hmm. not just the jail deaths, mismanagement of contracts, poor hiring. I mean, how many of his people were under criminal investigation? I mean, it's just if he would have run again, he would have been slaughtered because there were so many disastrous decisions he made. So it's great to have a primary. It's great that that Chris Ronain doesn't get to waltz right in, that, that there are candidates that will challenge him and and poke at him and, and get him on the record. Uh, I, the voters get to choose. We know that the Democratic primary in Cuyahoga County is largely where this race is decided, much to Republican Lee Weingart's dismay. He still <laughs> believes he has a chance, even though a Republican running for countywide office really doesn't. So so it's great. And, and if there are more candidates to get in, all the better. There should be a real discussion about the vision for this job so that we finally get a leader in it. Here, here. I have nothing else okay. to say to that. <laughs> well, good luck to her. And uh, we, we look for good debates between her and Chris Ronane and maybe other candidates yet to come. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How are some states doing what Ohio and Bill Seitz resist, trying to end the huge subsidies energy customers are paying for old coal power plants in Ohio and Indiana? Laura, we did a story, Jeremy Pelzer did a story about how much money we're plowing into those things, an Indiana coal plant, for God's sake. And, you know, of course, Bill Seitz came flying out of the woodwork to say, this is good, this is good, this is good, because he never met a utility squandering of dollars he couldn't appreciate. But we now see other states are actually trying to do right by the ratepayers. Yeah, absolutely. So just a reminder for Ohioans that we're supposed to pay a total of $1.8 billion in these subsidies by 2030. And it's being spread out among a lot of customers. But that is a lot of money. Uh, Michigan and Virginia are pushing back and they are working on... um, ways that they wouldn't their ratepayers would not be forced to pay subsidies just to keep these old plants alive. So the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation is this piketon based company. It's Ohio based and is owned jointly by more than a dozen Midwestern activities or sorry, utilities. They own the Kiger Creek and Clifty Creek power plants along the Ohio River. And in Michigan, state utility regulators last month warned they won't let Indiana Michigan Power Company, which is a subsidiary of American Electric Power subsidiary, charge customers more than market rates, which so that's a big deal. And then in Virginia, the state Supreme Court's agreed to hear a case involving a similar issues, whether another AEP subsidiary called Appalachian Power should be allowed to pay above market costs for power. So those states seem to know what they're doing. Sorry, guys, my dog just busted into the room. This is the first time this has happened. All right. So, so. Bill Seitz is a, one of the leading state legislators, and every time we talk about this issue, we hear from him, you know, saying we just don't understand it, and he knows better than us, and that this is good for the ratepayer, even though it sucks our pockets dry. Um, why, why are other states seeing it so differently than Ohio? 
Well, because I believe that they're sticking up for their ratepayers. I mean, we're not the only ones where we think that bailing out power plants is a good policy. Indiana's in the same boat. Their governor signed, you know, we just talked about how much I love Indiana, but their governor signed a law in 2020 that could lead customers to pay about $128 million above market rates from between 2020 and 2026. But I mean, that's only 10% of what we're paying. Like we seem to be getting the most screwed out yeah. of all of this. Well, we, you know, the legislature has been in the pocket of the utilities for a long time. And that's all come to a head because of HB6 and right. the investigation. But, you know, and this is all in support of of plants that pollute hugely. I mean, we're right. all trying to get to clean air, and yet we're paying extra money for coal plants. It's good to see. Good story on Cleveland.com that lays out what's happening in other states. I just wanted to point out that... AEP, Duke, and AES Ohio customers were paying for years. Um, the first energy customers, we didn't start paying until HB6 in January 2020. So, And that's the one part of HB6 <laughs> that hasn't been repealed. Still Thank on you, the books. Bill Seitz and company. You're listening to Today in Ohio. First, it was a new round of postponed elective surgeries. Now it's visitation. What policy from earlier in the pandemic are some Cleveland hospital systems bringing back to cope with the recent surge in coronavirus cases? Lisa, this is so discouraging. It feels like we're really coming back to some of the worst days of the pandemic. And and honestly, this was not unexpected with the surge just being so great over the last couple of weeks. But starting today... Uh, University hospitals and Cleveland Clinic will be changing their visitation policies. And uh, most of for both hospitals, it's pretty much the same. Uh, all visitors must be 18 years and old, 18 years old and older. They have to wear masks at all times, even when visiting in the patient room. They have to pad, pass COVID health screening and sanitize their hands upon entry into the hospital. Um, inpatient visitors for a Cleveland Clinic, they're specific ones. They're saying one adult visitor per day in the ER and for all inpatients. It can be a different person each day. But if you're an inpatient visitor, you can only enter the building one time a day. So you can't leave and come back. That's that's in Cleveland Clinic. And uh, visitors can who have tested positive for COVID can visit if they're at least 10 days out from their test. So yeah, I, I, Metro Health and Summer Health have not announced any changes to their visitation policy yet, but that could be forthcoming. Yeah, it's just a sign of how bad things have gotten again. I mean, we, we had similar situation in the Thanksgiving, the Christmas period last year, and we're not you know, we're not a week out, really, and we're back right in it. So, okay, bad news. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did Cleveland City Council do in its final meeting of the year, the final meeting of this version of council, and the final meeting of the administration of Mayor Frank Jackson? Layla, let's, uh, let's take these in succession because this is a multi-prong piece of news we want to talk about. So let's talk about each one. But first, did Frank Jackson show up for the final city council meeting of a decades-long career? Jackson did not attend the meeting, which, uh, you know, was really kind of surprising. But in fact, I guess he hasn't attended a meeting in person since the start of the pandemic. We did think, though, that this would be 
an important one. This is his very last one in his, you know, 16 years as mayor, but also his very long, decades-long career in at City Hall and in City Council. And uh, the very last meeting, he just he didn't come. So that was it was disappointing. But it, it definitely, but, you yeah. know. But Layla, you covered a lot of those meetings. I covered a lot of those meetings. Maybe there's just an upper limit that you can take. And once you hit it, you just never go back. <laughs> he again. hit the quota. <laughs> yeah. Well, I no, hit I that was, quota I, too. I was, so <laughs> I didn't go back. A lot, a lot fewer than he did. <laughs> That's I, I, I'm, I was surprised. I was predicting he would show up. He you do, were... He's a guy that does care about legacy. But, you know, he's been through hell with he has. deaths in his family. And, you know, he may have obligations we're just not aware of right. that, that didn't allow him right. to be there. It's hard to hold it against uh, you him, did right? Have, and you did have Kevin Kelly, mm-hmm. you know, being very graceful in his final, the final meeting that he oversaw as council president. He ran for mayor, didn't seek to stay on council. And it sounds like other outgoing members all got their due and gave their due to Jackson and Kelly for their leadership. Yes, the meeting ran, you know, probably till 11 p.m., I'll tell you, <laughs> with all of Another the farewells. Another reason Jackson might have wanted to <laughs> skip it. <laughs> all right, but they also did some stuff. Did. So let's start with what they did. They spent a whole lot of money from the ARPA, right. the American Rescue Plan. Yes, Rem- remember last week City Council voted to approve Jackson's broad spending categories, but almost none of his line item expenditures or any of the projects from that omnibus proposal. The only exception to that was public safety expenses because council was worried that waiting too long to order new vehicles and equipment would mean that vendors would sell out before they'd get around to it. Well, it appears that several of the projects that were waylaid last week found their way back into legislation this week. They include, you know, $8 million for housing development on Huff, uh, $3 million for the Allen Estates housing development, $2 million for a new Hitchcock Center for Women residential treatment facility, and then controversially, $2 million for Neon Health Services. And some council members did vote against these, these, these uh, you know, this legislation. Those who voted no were upset about how this all came out this week. They felt like it was a slap in the face to the statement that they were trying to send by not passing it last week. And, you know, of course, the NEON proposal in particular is very, very controversial. That's the healthcare nonprofit whose CEO gets half a million dollars in pay, including $100,000 raise during a time when the nonprofit was serving fewer patients and running a million dollars in the red, and then other scandals involving NEON. But that passed. So, you know, um, yeah. So let, let, let's stop there for a second, because you could argue that this is Frank Jackson administration trying to force stuff down the incoming administration's throat by doing it at the last minute because it'll be up to Justin Bibb to carry this through. But that that's not a Frank Jackson kind of thing to do. And I wonder if the real explanation is, is they've spent a lot of time on these projects and wanted to get them done before he left. That, that when he announced he wasn't running again, he had some stuff to do. And I look at the Allen Estates. I know. Isn't that another way of right, saying and, trying to force Justin Bibb to do them? No, I, I. But if you if you had invested a year of time trying to, and and you had negotiated and done what you need to do to get the project done, you'd want to see it through. Look, we we know Sheila Wright. Sure. Sheila Wright is is one of Cleveland's leading thinkers. And she's trying to get a project going in Huff that is very much needed, a residential project and economic development. 
that thing has been in the works forever. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of work under the dam. And I think that that you could say that Jackson wanted to see through. Sure, he could have handed it off to Justin Bibb and Justin Bibb then could have delivered. But is that fair to the developers of these projects to go through it all over again? I don't know the answer. I was a little bit surprised at some of it. I did think the... There was it fifty six million in other projects the council said no to did come out of nowhere. I mean, this showed up for the first time yesterday, and they wanted what was it? Is that what it was? Fifty six million in community development projects, and the council said no. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I, yeah. It's it, 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 what, I mean, what do you think though? Do you think it's disrespectful to council to try to to usher these things through at the last minute when last week and and they spent weeks and weeks vetting out the omnibus legislation and deciding how their own priorities comport with it. Don't you think that it's kind of disrespectful? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about the $8 million one because I, I wasn't as familiar with that. Um, but I know council has been talking about the Sheila Wright project for a long time. And I know they've had discussions about um, one of the others. So I don't know. I, I, I would feel bad. For, I mean, what would the, what is the message to the developers that, yeah, we spent a year negotiating with you, but guess what? We're leaving. You got to start anew with the next administration. Mm-hmm. I You know, that's not a good sign to developers. I, I don't know. I mean, I would hope that he would have had discussions with Justin Bibb about it. And maybe Justin Bibb would have said, yeah, I'm fine with those. Um, I, I it, It's hard to it's hard to say. The uh, the other thing they did that threw me was they created a whole new department, right. which that does feel disrespectful to Justin Bibb. You create an entirely new department and hand it off and say, it's your problem here. What's that yeah, about? Yeah, so the, the council approved uh, Jackson's plan to establish this city division to coordinate special events, and it'll be overseen by a new commissioner who will have civil service protection. This position is intended to streamline all the bureaucratic hoops that event planners have to jump through uh, when they're looking to host, you know, everything from routine block parties and wedding receptions to national events like the NBA All-Star Game that's coming to Cleveland in February. And so, you know, the question is, who's going to get this job? Because it could pay as much as $140,000 a year. And you know, we always see it's sort of a, a long-standing tradition at City Hall that the outgoing mayor, you know, finds a spot for his favorites that is civil service protected so that they, you know, have a cushy spot to land in the next administration. And we don't know who that's going to be here. We have some thoughts, but we nothing concrete. <laughs> yeah, I, I this one I did. You know, this was talked about much earlier in the year and lots of council raised lots of questions so much so that it never came in for a final vote to kind of cram this through on their final vote of the year without any notice. We never heard this was coming yeah. back. It just showed up yesterday. And it is kind of unfair. You know, Justin Bibb is the one that's now saddled with this thing that you might not even want. It's a civil service protected job. So whoever gets it, he's stuck with. Uh, it seems like this was not a gracious way to hand over the baton. And you're right. He's got people in his cabinet that probably don't have employment prospects elsewhere. Right, right, right. <laughs> we won't name them. <laughs> and that's a pretty good paying job if they get the 140 k to go out and be the, the movie negotiator. <laughs> we'll have to see how that goes. Anything else come out of the, the final yeah, meeting of this you know, council? There was, there was uh, another item that got approved was the, the measure that would allow Jackson to lease eight acres along 
the newly completed Opportunity Corridor to that enterprise that wants to put a 47,000-square-foot trade school there called the Construction Opportunity Institute of Cleveland. This was, of course, originally contemplated with an adjoining asphalt and concrete plant, but, you know, pretty much the entire world opposed that. <laughs> so, um, you know. We were first. We, we were <laughs> the first to call that out. Um, Norm Edwards and Fred Perkins, the two guys behind this, would, would also have the option to eventually buy the property. So um, so that passed. You know, it's uh, there were some members, Carrie McCormick, Mike Polensic, Charles Slife, they voted against it. Uh, I think they just still maintain that this is not the best use of this giant parcel on Opportunity Corridor. Um, you know, that's... Uh, uh, you know, this is, yeah, so it's a three-year lease, you know, a dollar, a dollar lease, <laughs> um, and it would it would not really allow the men to start building on the site, uh, but would let them perform environmental remediation and site prep. It would also let them, let the city help by seeking about one and a half million for, for that remediation work. So that's, that's you know, we're taking baby steps toward this thing, but it's still controversial. I mean, you three three members opposing it is, is, is uh, you know quite a big deal when well, you're talking about a council that usually walks together and in, in you know on these measures the part the part of this that kind of causes the conflict here is we spent a lot of money on that road I mean, it's the most expensive piece of pavement in the history of the city with the idea that if you build it they will come that it will be developed and when you drive along it we've said this before you really can see that this is major league primo space for developers there are a lot of people with means that'll be driving on this road lots of development could come and already they're giving it away i mean it just seems like why not let the let the vision play out i mean one they're going to try and build a police station there which is a really dumb idea now you shouldn't do that and and now this it's like wh- why not let this develop you've invested the money all of us did the taxes poured into this thing are huge why not let wait and see now does it work if it doesn't work fine start subsidizing it but we haven't even given it a chance yep, yet that's that's exactly right so we'll see if if i mean at least at least the asphalt and concrete plant have been set aside uh you know that probably will go in some other you know industrial strip someplace but uh yeah that that would have killed this but but i i yeah, yeah. I, I just don't know. That's the it's one I'm tra- talking about. We were first on. Yes. We, we blasted that idea <laughs> the did. day that came up. We were and, relentless. And I think that <laughs> created a movement to stop it. There was a lot of resistance to that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just hope they don't end up giving away all the land on Opportunity Carter instead of seeing if it works as, as had yeah. been. Yeah. I mean, this is this I mean, is a high purpose for it, but but is it really what's going to spur uh, the kind of develop that, development that was envisioned for this this uh, this road? Um, we'll see. Maybe the police officers off the school to get a second career to be up the road. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Again, we have not gotten to many of our topics. That's good. Robust discussions are healthy. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.